I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 19th. In this episode, we are long past the era of simple on and off switches for our electronics. We're interacting with our technologies in entirely novel ways, and we're still not done. What it is technologically possible to do is evolving very quickly as sensors get backed by artificial intelligence. This week, we have a discussion with Michael Hurlston, the CEO of Synaptics, about smartphones, vehicles, and consumer electronics, and how we interact with our stuff. Edgel Juliusson has been one of the leading analysts of the automotive market for the last 20 years. This week, he began a regular column for EE Times. We talk with him about the pandemic-related recession in the automotive market and what that might mean for the development of new automotive electronics for assisted and autonomous driving. Synaptics was founded in 1986 by Carver Mead, one of the early titans of neural network research, and Federico Fajan, an industry legend who built the first commercial microprocessor while at Intel and later co-founded Zilog and then Synaptics. Synaptics specializes in human-machine interfaces. The company helped pioneer touchscreens, fingerprint input, and voice. It is renowned for its expertise in sensor technology and in artificial intelligence. The company's technology enables smartphone touchscreens and Amazon's Alexa. Where should we go today? Alexa, what is the weather in Bangkok, Thailand? In Bangkok, Thailand, it's 81 degrees. So let's go back to where my mother's from, Stuttgart, Germany. Alexa, do I need an umbrella in Stuttgart, Germany? It might rain in Stuttgart, Germany today. I'm going to have to tell my mother that. How we interact with our electronic devices has changed dramatically and is still changing. For our devices to respond effectively and quickly, they depend on AI technology. That puts Synaptics at an interesting juxtaposition of several of the key trends in modern technology. Sensing, AI, cloud computing, and edge computing. Michael Hurlston was named CEO of Synaptics a little less than a year ago. We invited him to give us some perspective on human-machine interface technology and the AI technology behind it. Where are we on the, the maturity level of AI as a feature? So for us, our customers want to tap into our AI engine and, and do things with it. Um, a good example is, is voice recognition. We, we work with Google, Google's home speakers, home pods, they actually do a lot of the AI algorithms to recognize your voice and your series of commands. And they see that as, as a big differentiator for them. And they frankly do that really, really well. Then there's another set of customers who want us to try to provide turn, not try, but pr- provide turnkey solutions, right? So like to your point, they want us to have trained the machine to do either voice recognition, to do some of the see in the dark, to do video enhancements and what have you. So we have a battery of AI engineers here that write the algorithms and every algorithm needs this training sequence. You have to, you have to give something, something to train on, to learn from, and you have to repeat, 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 repeat patterns, and then it's able to learn. And so we're, adept at being able to accelerate that experience and, and make sure that our machine 
learning our AI algorithms are, are really, really useful at point use cases that, that we think are important. Now, a lot of what's coming in, uh, a lot of the discussion has been around um, edge compute and, and edge sensing and keeping the data at the edge and hoping that uh, you can actually do some, some machine learning at the edge. Um, and that's, uh, that seems like that's like yet another different paradigm, the capability to learn quickly and accurately is then kind of is the feature, right? Um, how does that work out? Yeah, I think typically for these AI algorithms, you need huge compute. So the normal use case has been to pass through the Hey Google command, for example, that wakes up a speaker and you can start interacting with it. That would go all the way back to a data center. It would train on Brian's voice, Michael's voice, David's voice, what have you, figure out, okay, what did, what did that person just say to me? And then come all the way back from the cloud to the edge to make that command, to make that command actionable. And so what's happened now is we've been able to pack, just, just like any technology, we've been able to pack more and more compute into these edge SOCs. And now these edge SOCs are capable of doing teraops of, of, of compute. And so now at the edge, you can do that same thing and not have it all the way, have it to go all the way back to cloud and back, which has advantages in terms of privacy, has in terms of advantages in terms of latency, has advantages in terms of turn time. And all of those things have said, okay, now if you can actually get your engine to work at the edge, there's, there's real distinct advantages to that. And that's what we've tried to perfect. So uh, again, we, we started off discussing the, the wide range of, uh, of human machine interfaces that, that Synaptics is uh, involved with. What are some of the new capabilities, the exciting advantages the, that, uh, that you feel combining AI with some of your, your traditional input technologies? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking about uh, you know fun new applications and and products. Yeah, I, I'd say there there are two real areas that we see use. So our historical advantage has been in voice, in in interacting with something using using audio audio detect and things like that. So we've been able now to take a traditional audio codec, which is just translating sound to something that you can ultimately hear. It's all digital compute and digital sampling to something that you can compute. Now to insert an artificial intelligence engine in that such that it can now begin to do speech recognition and not only do speech recognition, but then learn and train on speech recognition as it goes. So the audio use case is a pretty obvious one. Everyone now seems to have these these speakers in their house and is doing a lot of interaction with those speakers. I, I was uh, out at uh, my alma mater is UC Davis. I went out to UC Davis and the, the graduate school there had just won a competition that Amazon had put on. And the whole idea was to do natural speech recognition on the Alexa see how far they could push the capability. 
And that in a small way is, is really what we're trying to do, right? We don't have hundreds of, of graduate students working on the project, but we have a small team of engineers doing natural speech recognition that can happen on the edge to open up the range of commands that can be used. The second area we touched on as well, which is on the video side of our business, we've got a bunch of ICs that did simple video decoding. When you fed a stream of bits, on the other side, it would, it would be able to light up a display and, and, and resolve a picture. But now if you insert an AI block into that video processor, you get a much better image quality. I could take uh, uh, a data stream that's, let's say, uh, a high definition data stream and actually do pixel extrapolation on it and blow it up to an 8K-like picture. So much, much better pixelization, much better qual color quality and things like that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, take something that's happened in low light or almost no light and being able to pull out a picture where you wouldn't have been able to get one using standard video decoding techniques. So that AI engine gives us a lot of enhancement capability on our video class products. So that's very fascinating. So uh, applications presumably in surveillance, in videography, cinematography, that sort of thing? Are, are yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the big ones is is definitely surveillance. So you have a problem now if there's there's no background light. How can I pick up, you know, what what's the difference between a bird on my doorstep and a, an intruder? I can now pick that out. Um, I can also do things like facial recognition, where I know it's the homeowner coming to the doorstep rather than somebody who who hasn't been seen before. So th those use cases are are things that. You know, we take our standard video technology and then insert this AI block that gives us this enhanced capability that's a differentiator and enables us to sell more of our goodies. Cool. Now, you get, you, uh, you've also got uh, some products in automotive. And um, I think um, the people I talk to are really very excited about assisted driving and, and autonomy, uh, especially. But a lot of new vehicles have um, these extraordinary new dashboards with with all sorts of input options. Um, tell us how Synaptics is involved in that, and what some of those, uh, you know, what you see some of the, the the dashboard technology beginning to look like in automotive. Yeah, you're you're touching on exactly our area of expertise. Uh, you've 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 read and studied well. Um, it, it is everything to do with sort of touch and display on these in-car, in-cabin screens. And so you think about the screen went from nothing. I mean, it obviously went from analog uh, tachometers and speedometers to something that was more digital, and then suddenly you had this infotainment unit that was this maybe four inches across the size of a phone, to now you've got tablet-sized uh, displays inside the automobile. Well, there's even one, one, one uh, brand has actually got an entire dashboard passenger to driver side, right? And that, Brian, is exactly where we come in. So is those just what we call it pillar to pillar, meaning that it's going the entire length of the dashboard 
um, that's where we come in. And so we are able to deliver display. The, the display technology is similar to what we were talking about in our, in our video codecs. We're able to take and, and drive the display and make sure that it's coming up cleanly in a very, very large format, large screen format. And then the other side of it is where touch is applicable. You have the capability now to interact with the screen and bring up music options or, or what el whatever else you might want. Um, the interesting thing that, that, that's being discussed now is the cluster, which is this more of the instrumentation panel, the speedometer, the tachometer. The automotive manufacturers are act actually asking for touch on that area of the screen. So today, that would be blanked out for touch. And then the infotainment portion of it, the radio, the weather, you know, what have you, that has touch interaction. For some reason, and we can't quite figure it out now, we're getting more and more interest around having touch in the cluster. So they're, they're asking for it and they're not quite telling you what exactly they... Yeah, I don't know if it's to, you know, fake what speed I'm going at. So when the, the police pull me over, no, look, I was only going 15 miles an hour. I'm not sure what it's for, <laughs> but... Uh, it, it, it enables, I mean, it starts with exactly the concept that you're talking about, this, this super, super wide pillar-to-pillar -pillar type of display, and then being able to go and, and now add touch to elements of that, either all of it or part of it, um, you know, that's really what we do pretty well. Uh, so, I, just out of curiosity, I mean, uh, where would you like to see some, some interesting HMI? Uh, you know, robotics uh, telling your refrigerator to go order milk. Yeah, you you stole my you stole my my number one, which would be okay. I'm out of you know lemonade or I'm out of milk or something. You know, can you please get it? And it, it shows up. You know, 15 minutes later, or whatever it is. Maybe ideally in in two minutes. I'm not sure. Um, that to me is 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 a real use case, and we're honestly getting closer and closer to that every single day. Um, you know, I, I, I like this experience too, and I think this is something that's that's with the whole COVID-19 uh, has become more real, which is video conferencing. I, I think that people were somewhat averse to video conferencing. This has enabled it, and now we see more and more use cases for social video conferencing, which, again, we, we like as a technology and we think we can enable, and that means not just a business conversation like this one, but more social and bringing faraway relatives into the home around birthdays or whatever. Um, you know, I've, I've been a part of various meetings where you have vastly better attendance now by using a Zoom call than you did gathering people in person you know, 100 miles away or what, what, what might be, right? If, if you asked me to fly to Portland to go meet you for this interview, that might be one thing. If I asked you to come down here to the Bay Area for the interview, that might be one thing. But being able to do that, getting able to see you, it's a great experience. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Agreed. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Brian, wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, coming down out of the wonderful fort, the second floor of the fort, into your basement and spending time with us this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so just in case you were wondering, the kids moved out years ago and I've taken over their fort in the backyard, which I use as my summer office. 
Now the chickens, which are just below, can be noisy at the most inconvenient times, however, so I head for the relatively soundproof confines of my basement. Is that TMI? Egil Juliusson until recently was an analyst with IHS Market, where he covered automotive technologies designed to help people drive more safely on driver assist technology, also known by the acronym ADAS. Now he's out on his own, but he recently agreed to write a regular column on automotive technology for EE Times. Over a long career, Agile has been incredibly prolific, having cranked out, by his estimate, over 700 research reports, conference presentations, and other publications. Given that, it should be no surprise that this week, Agile did not write his first column for us. He wrote his first two. The second was about how the pandemic is affecting not only the automotive market in general, but also how it's affecting the development schedule of new automotive technologies. Here he is with EE Times International Editor Junko Yoshida. That second column took as its starting point the latest automotive sales projections from IHS Market. Junko opened by asking him what the damage might be. Basically, it's dropping 22% from 2019. So it's going, uh, it's going to be about uh, 69.6 million, while last year it was 89.7 million. So that's a phenomenal drop. And um, there's really, on a global basis, there's never been anything like that. The closest to it is really the. 2007-2011 recession, there actually the, the sales in the U.S. over that period dropped about the same amount, but, but the global sale did not because that's the time when China was cranking up their auto sales. And so that essentially uh, uh, hid the, 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 the clients in Europe and the U.S., so really, this is this is the heaviest we've ever seen, or at least I haven't found any data. Uh, so the, the the 2020 drop is just phenomenal. If you look at the numbers, though, in the last five years, for example, global automotive sales are going plateauing. Or what's what, what's the uh, what's the trending line? No, the, the U.S. sales U.S. sales are have been plateauing from a long time and just goes up and down with, with economic. But the global sales has continued, it you know at a at a few percentage uh, each year. So uh, it's it's definitely going up. Uh, but now with this big drop, then it has to start from a new base. And really, by by twenty thirty, uh, uh, yeah, so it drops to to um, to sixty nine point six. By 2030, it'll be about 101 million units. So, so it's it's steady. But if you go back, say six months ago, the forecast then was more, you know, seven or eight million units higher for 2030 than they are for now. So it doesn't make an impact. You don't get get back to where you were for for a while. Yeah. So, how will COVID-19 affect the? Um automotive industry in general. I think you talked about the impact on R&D spending, VC investment. Uh, tell me more. 
Yeah, basically, since the sales are lower, that means revenue is less. And, and R&D is usually a, a fixed percent or a slightly variable percentage of, of, uh, of revenue. And in the auto industry, it's in the 5 to 6% range. And so okay. so you, you cut down. That, that means they have less money to spend. So, so that means they have to choose between their multiple uh, investment strategy and and right now there are three major investment strategy it's uh, battery evs it's it's automotive and 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 then also the, the third one is really software they have to invest more in software if you look at somebody like uh, you know vw they've talked about they they on a big invest and so these three things now are starting to compete and depending on the company they're gonna favor one or the other and so it, it looks to me like uh, battery EVs is more important than anything else for many of the companies not all but but um, GM basically and, and VW is certainly in that area and uh, so uh, but autonomous vehicle uh, is probably it, it might compete with the software and, and they may delay a little bit because, you know, they can't do so much testing now because there's much harder to do with no traffic and all that stuff. Um, and, and then actually the fourth thing, it's it's to keep, you got to invest in your old strategy. I mean, your old, uh, you know, the, the combustion engine. And so, so I think that the combustion engine investments really going to get, uh, they're going to cut, that more than anything else because they need to do the air battery. But again, this is, it, it varies by company. But in some, you know, it does make sense, you know, battery is the long-term winner and the, the governments, particularly in Europe, they are pushing it. So th there's many reasons to do this. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So it's sort of unintended consequences because of the COVID-19, they have to pick and choose. And you would think that they have to maintain the current business and yet the investment money won't be that much available for maintaining the combustion engine um, development. That's what you're saying. Or, 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 the, or in some way, they just had to, to stop doing new things. You know, they have plenty they can, they can re, you know, use for, for a decade, you know, it's just that um, they're probably not going to find, you know, uh, or invest very much in, in better combustion engine because it makes more sense to invest in, in battery EVs. All right. Okay. So um, now I think the second part of your story actually look, looked at the uh, um, the COVID economy impact on different segments of uh, auto autonomous uh, market. I think that, that, you know, the thing that I love about your column is that you look at, you know, you don't, you don't actually say everything is autonomous, right? You actually go into the granular level of autonomy. So you talk about the, um, you know, robot taxi, shared robot taxi, goods delivery, you know, personal, uh, you know, level four, level four vehicles, you know, you, you actually had all these different segments. So tell me that, uh, in your opinion, which segments of autonomous vehicles will have most delays and why? 
Yeah, the, the most delay is probably going to be what's called the fixed route uh, vehicles. And, you know, they're small, you know, 12 or 16 passenger, uh, kind of a minibus that runs around and uh, and they're shared. So they're, they're going to have many people in there. And all of a sudden, that's no longer, the, you know, people don't want to do that. So for that reason, that that's going to have to be delayed. So literally, uh, until we have a vaccine for for COVID, I, I don't think th th those are going to be used very much for shared vehicles. Um, uh, they might be used for goods uh, transport, but but th they tend to be too expensive for that. Uh, and uh, and th that is the strongest area for the European industry, so that's kind of bad for them. Then, uh, so so uh, no, the, the the next one is probably robo taxi. They're going to be delayed because uh, in terms of in investment and and all of that going on, it's and, and they're going from one city at a time, so they're going to be delayed for for. For, for a while and or they're going to be slower rolling out uh, is, is what it looks like uh, after that really the the the, uh, the goods vehicles those are the ones that were proven to be useful in in the covid area you know they were used in in china in in uh, several areas for for delivering uh, various types of of equipment and uh, medicine and so on so they showed themselves to be very useful now there were very few of them so they, it's not a big impact but it showed everybody that those goods uh, vehicle they're very useful for any kind of environment where the people don't want to be and they hadn't really realized so all of a sudden that's become uh, more more interesting and the, the the few companies that make it they get lots of orders after that much more than they had before you had actually uh, divided uh, this uh, goods avs one for the uh, sidewalk avs uh, delivery av versus um, what was that the other one yeah they're 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 they're, they're car based or, or the, the 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 interest the more the more interesting one is is like neuro has i call it the half size car oh right right <laughs> yeah. right right because because they're 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 narrow uh, but they're tall they have to be as tall as cars so so you can see them in the traffic so uh, otherwise they could have been much lower but they they tend to be fairly tall to see that because they and have the, to go through the regular streets yeah. right yeah right that right. they have to they have to they they drive on, on the roads and and the sidewalk those are you know they're little yeah. You, you had a little. I saw you had a little article about in, in Moscow. You know the, the those are very interesting, and uh, you, you know Amazon has their own version of that, and and so so you can see that the the e-commerce players they're going to use those to deliver the the last mile or two, and so so there's there's lots of investment in that. So they have they have a tremendous potential and of course they can't really hurt people you know even if they run into your leg you know it's not going to be a big deal and so so you're going to see those are coming out uh, you know they've been tr a tremendous amount of testing already and you, know, you can almost it's almost like deployment to some extent but uh, and so those are going to do well the, the the neuro the half size uh, they've gotten the permission to to try those in in many areas but for instance neuro is trying those in houston right now although with, uh, they, at least they got permit to, to do that. And so those are interesting. And then the autonomous truck uh, is also, I think, uh, further along than most people think. And it's it's the hub, what's called hub to hub 
type transport where they go from from say a, a warehouse uh, which is close to the highway get on the highway drive on the highway and then they deliver something either at another warehouse or a store and so th those are, are are doing quite well and there's more investment and the major players there are are are, are trialing with with many of, of the companies that are doing that although some some of the smaller operator there they, they uh, you know like uh, they, they they're probably not going to get the venture capital to 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 uh, go f uh, go all the way because there, there there are quite a few of those but uh, the major ones and Google is starting to do that uh, with the, no, the Waymo uh, Waymo one I guess it's what they call it so they're coming in there so a lot of activity in those areas so there's a spectrum basically on which one which one are coming in uh, first or, and, and which one are going to be, um, be be favored in in the in the, uh, the COVID economy yeah all right so in that realm that you don't think that the robotaxi which was really the story of the decade in the last 10 years uh, that's not going to happen in your in, in your prediction when 2024 25 what's what's your prediction here i, I think in, in terms of real deployment it's sort of 2025 you know there may be a few cities that are, are the, you know th that are trialing it in maybe in large volume you know several hundred or you know if you look at what's uh waymo's doing in phoenix yeah yeah there could that you could classify that as but they still have a, a safety driver for for most of them so so the the, the the, the years that I put down there, it's without safety drivers, yeah, for, for the robot taxi. So, and and the thing is, you know, they can only, once they establish, they're only in one city, then they got to go to the next city and, and learn everything over again to some extent. Uh, and so, so it takes time to deploy that. And uh, probably it's going to happen more in, in the the nice climate cities first. And then, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. So Arizona, Florida, California, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Texas, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Texas is probably going to yeah. be there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so, so when you said those numbers at twenty twenty five, it is uh, you are uh, uh, thinking about the. Uh, Cars, the robot robotaxis without a safety driver. Without a safety driver, and in and, and in large, you know, hundreds of, of vehicles in in a in, in a given city, and maybe even thousands of, of vehicle in a, in a large city. But when you sum it up, though, it looks like a, you know, it was open season until recently because of that a lot of VC money coming in and a lot of startups uh, popped up and they're all gunning for this new new market. And yet uh, when something like COVID-19 hits, um, the big ones could probably survive because uh, they have made um, previously big investment and they will they will have enough resources continue to continue, right? Yes, yeah, I think that's right. And but so and also when the VC cutting back, they also cutting back the number of company they're supporting. So that means there's a little little more going to the remaining one. So 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 uh, so it's not as bad as it sounds for the for the major one. It's the smaller one. They're the one that are out of luck. Right. And then so the um, startups who were looking at this market uh, with new technology, new sensor technology, whether it's a lighter technologies or whatever, um, they will probably have to pivot to find, find the different segment. Or what's your advice? I, I think some of them are going to be acquired. The, the best one are going to be acquired because the t 
tier ones and the OEMs, they're going to want that technology. And some of the high tech companies, you know, I, I would I, I would not be surprised to see Amazon acquire a, a one or two. And, and you know that well, they actually they're looking at Zooks according to the to the to the rumor mill. So so that'll be interesting to see. But then if, if you look at say the the the, the lighter companies, there's so many of those. Those can pivot to other areas uh, if they want to. But even you know there's just too many of those and so again some are going to be acquired by the tier one or other companies and so so, so they, we'll have fewer of those in a couple of years and and of course the, the, you know the, the this thinning out was was going to happen sooner or later it's just that covid makes it sooner yeah no that's true wow so it's uh it's to be watched Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Please come back to the show again. Okay, Agil. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was fun. All right. Thank you. A moment ago, Junko and Agil referenced the possibility of Amazon buying Zooks. The Wall Street Journal reported the possibility of an acquisition a little over two weeks ago. Zooks was founded in 2014. In 2018, it promised to have robo taxis operating in San Francisco this year. That's not going to happen. The startup said several companies have come knocking on its door, but as of the day we recorded this, it hadn't announced a sale yet. So after looking forward at where technology is going, we like to wrap up with a look back. For this week's great moment in technology history, we're going to set our way back machine to... June 14th, 1822 the day the world first heard about a device which, had it ever been built, would have been the first proto-computer. In 1820, a group of scientists founded the Astronomical Society of London. It would become the Royal Astronomical Society 11 years later. One of the founders was William Herschel, who discovered Uranus. It was the first new planet identified in close to three millennia. Another founder was a young mathematician named Charles Babbage. At the time, astronomical tables were used to trace the positions of heavenly bodies. Babbage was put out to find that most of them were filled with errors. The Industrial Revolution was in full swing, and it occurred to Babbage that there had to be some sort of mechanical means to represent the mathematical operations that were the basis for calculating the movements of the planets. Two years after helping to found the Astronomical Society, on June 14th in 1822, Charles Babbage delivered a paper to that body entitled, Note on the Application of Machinery to the Computation of Astronomical and Mathematical Tables. In this talk, he described his difference engine, a machine that could mechanically and reliably perform polynomial equations. Construction began on a difference engine, but was never completed. Well, not in Babbage's lifetime. One was built in London and completed in 1991. It proved that, had Babbage been able to complete his, it would have worked. Another was built in California and finished in 2008. Both are enormous hand-cranked machines. What you're hearing in the background is the second machine in operation. The difference engine was the precursor to a more ambitious design that Babbage would introduce in 1834. 
That was a general purpose computing machine, later called the analytical engine. The difference engine was more of a calculator, if you will. While the analytical engine, Babbage had introduced most of the concepts inherent in programmable electronic computers that would be built more than 100 years later. On the other hand, the difference engine inspired its own subgenre of fiction, steampunk, along with an attendant costume style. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending June 19th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspencore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Poop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.